Uh, friends, uh, let's read Psalm 2. So if you follow with me in your Bibles. Mic working all right? Good. This one? Not at all. You swap them around? Yeah, it's all right. I'll lift this. You can't now. Okay. Put you slightly behind the um, speakers yep. so that we don't get the feedback. Sure. Why don't we move back? How's that? Yeah. Oh, it is better. I can hear that. Okay, Psalm 2. Why do the nations conspire and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us break their chains and throw off their shackles. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. He rebukes them in his anger and he terrifies them in his wrath. Sorry, I'm, I'm remembering the old version anyway. Um, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain, and I will proclaim the Lord's decree. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask of me and I will make the nations your inheritance and the ends of the earth your possession. You will break them with a rod of iron. You will dash them to pieces like pottery. Therefore, you kings, be wise. Be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and celebrate his rule with trembling. Kiss the son, for he will be angry and your way will lead to your destruction. For his wrath can flare up in a moment. And blessed are all who take refuge in him. Now let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you for your son your king. We pray today that as we learn about him from this uh, psalm and from this great book of psalms, that you might instruct us, that you might help us, that you might drive us toward your son and you might uh, drive us toward obedience and subjection to him. And uh, Father, we pray this for his glory and in his name. Amen. Uh, I want to begin by telling you a little bit of my experience, own experience in ministry. Uh, some of you heard this a bit earlier on, but I became a Christian at 18. I entered theological college at 20, uh, and I exercised Christian ministry for about 20 years. And then, uh, this is why uh, I spoke earlier on, uh, I became clinically depressed. Anyway, uh, as I explained to some people, I, became, I, I needed to take some time off ministry. I took a year off, and I worked in IT. And my first job in IT involved checking over, and you'll be able to spot what year it was, uh, checking over 800 computers for the Y2K bug. <laughs> I met lots of people. I went to every PC in uh, an organisation of about, I think it was four or 500, and I put a disk in a drive and I checked some things and <laughs> recorded it all and so on. Um, uh, the, the people I met were very different from the people I met in ministry. Um, 
The world I encountered was largely, I think, a godless world. Uh, very few people were openly interested in God, uh, but those interested in God often seemed to want to hide their interest. And I began to realise that that was the world uh, that we live in, really, uh, a world actively rebellious against God. Uh, or a world that simply just doesn't recognise God as being anyone of any significance. Uh, and so I began to wonder if God had anything to do with that world, and I found that he did. And Psalm 2 is a classic example of God speaking to his world. He's got some things to say to his world, and he says them. Now, uh, before we get underway, I need to say that the richness of this psalm that we're going to look at now is difficult to measure. It is overwhelmingly loaded with wealth. Uh, it is intricately bound into the whole book of Psalms. It is richly cited in the New Testament. And I think I could spend probably weeks on it. Um, but instead, I'm going to have to summarise it in about 30 minutes or so. Uh, so in the, these next 30 minutes, I want to help you grasp what it means in itself. And I want you to grasp what it means in the whole of the book of Psalms. And I want to grasp some of its significance for the whole of the Bible. So that's not a bad thing to try and achieve in 30 minutes, I guess. Um, so stick with me. We're going to take a fly through this psalm. And then at the end, I hope and pray that you'll be blown away by its depth and grandeur. It is beyond comparison in many ways. I hope that you'll be drawn also to the Lord Jesus. As a result of this exploration, I, will, I am praying that you will bow before the Lord Jesus again today. Uh, I'm also praying that you'll go running to his Father to thank him and praise him with loud acclamation and with joy-filled hearts for all that he is and all he has done. For our God is a great King and a great God above all gods. And his son is a mighty saviour and a glorious Messiah. So with those prayers and wishes uttered, let's, uh, let's get underway and have a look at this together. Let me begin uh, by reminding you of one of the rich stories of the Bible. I want you to just in your brain go back in history. God has chosen his first king of Israel. His name is Saul. And Saul is becoming something of a failure of a king uh, from the beginning of his career. Uh, he really did not start well. And God announces to him that there'll be no line of kings that come from him. Instead, he will look for someone better than Saul. And we all know the story, don't we? Uh, Samuel the prophet is sent off to this family of a certain Jesse. Uh, and he looks for uh, Samuel, likes grand things like all of us do. And so he looks for a grand, tall, handsome man. Instead, he finds a small, insignificant shepherd boy. You'll understand this next statement that I'm going to make. He is in Hebrew called Hakaton, which means little one. It could mean youngest one. It could mean physically small in stature. But nevertheless, he wasn't what Samuel was looking for. And this, this sort of red-faced young man, ruddy-faced lad, is God's anointed. Um, and we love him from the beginning. Like everyone else who meets him through the book of 1 and 2 Samuel, everyone loves this man except Saul. We love him as he refuses to take the throne from Saul. We love him as he gathers friends around him. We love him as he finally becomes king. 
Well, we love him while he waits even. And then he captures, do you remember that Jebusite city? And he renames it Jerusalem. And he brings the Ark of the Covenant into that city. So imagine him now. We're, uh, we're in the middle of, uh, well, in the first third of 2 Samuel. He's king. He has God's blessing. And then in 2 Samuel 7, he takes the initiative. He proposes that he will build a house for God. By that I mean he will build a grand temple for God. And God sends his prophet to David. And God says, no. He refuses David's initiative. David will not build a house for God. No, God the king will build a house for David. God's words come thick and fast from the prophet's mouth. Let me read them to you. Don't look them up. Just listen to them. I took you, he says, from being a shepherd to being a prince. And I have been with you. And I will make your name great. And I will give you rest from your enemies. And I will raise up offspring after you. And I will establish his kingdom. And I will be a father to him, and he will be a son to me. My friends, it's hard to acknowledge how grand those promises are. This is God's covenant with David. This is God's promise to David and his family. This is the background that sits behind Psalm 2. This is what is being spoken about there. It is a psalm about David. It is a psalm about Davidic kingship. It is a song about the promises of God to David. It is a psalm about God's covenant with him. So with that background, let's have a closer look at it because it arises out of exactly the story that I've told you. We are now, if I could say it, at the heart of the promises of God to Israel. We're at the heart of God's purposes in his world. Now, the first thing I want you to notice, have a look, Psalm uh, 2 is that there are four sections to this psalm. The first section runs uh, verses 1 to 3. And we don't even know who speaks those words. But they are about the plans and the words of the nations and their rulers. The second runs from verses 4 to 6. And it's about the Lord's response to the nations and their rulers and their speaking. The third runs from verses 7 to 9. And it's about how the Lord's anointed king responds to the nations and their rulers and what they're saying. And then the final and fourth section runs from verses 10 to 12, and it parallels the first section. We don't know who's speaking. It could be the psalmist. It could be the king again. We don't know. But we, what we do know is that the kings of the nations are being addressed again. So there are the four sections. Let's look at each one in turn. Verse 1 poses a question. The speaker appears surprised, and so he asks, well, why is it? That the nations conspire and the, uh, and the nations plot in vain. The word for conspire actually is a word for growing restless. Right? It, it, and the word for plot is actually the same word used in Psalm 1 for meditate. It means to, to sort of mutter, growl, or read in an undertone or a plot. Okay, it's sort of that sort of stuff. Okay? Uh, and the portrait is profound. Here are the nations. They are growing restless. They are muttering and growling to themselves. 
And verse 2 tells us the object of their restlessness and their muttering. It is the Lord and his anointed. And the word anointed could be literally translated and his Messiah. But that's what the word anointed means. So here are the nations. And their rulers are grumbling under their breath. They're plotting. They're growing restless. They've formed a united front. And the object of this is the Lord and his Messiah, the Lord and his anointed king. And it's not some small-scale rebellion, let me tell you. This is the banding together of the world powers of their day and their representatives. And they're asserting themselves against a threat to their sovereignty and power. And this threat is God and his king. For these nations, these kings object to the constraints that God and his king have imposed upon them. And they want to break free. They're saying, I've had enough of God's rule and his king and his prince and oh, I've had enough. Well, I want to move on. I want to break free. That's what verse 3 says. The words are strong and oppositional. They cry out against God's sovereign ruler. Let us burst the bounds asunder and cast their cords from us. And with that, we flip over and we go to, into heaven. And the Lord sees the heavings of the nations and their rulers. And he doesn't sit there sort of, oh, no, no, these guys, they're running loose from me. No, the one enthroned in heaven laughs in amusement at them. He has them in derision. He entertains himself with mirth at their silliness. And he taunts them for their stupidity. He refuses to take them with any seriousness at all. In other words, if I could put it in sort of our language, it would be their opposition to him is laughable. But at the same time, their opposition is deadly serious. And that's what verse 5 says. Look at it with me. For the psalmist tells us that after the Lord's laughing and taunting, then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury. This is, th these words remember about his anointed king whom they oppose. And they are firm words and significant words, terrifying. I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. The God of all the earth speaks. He quietens the earth and its rulers in their upheaval. And he utters his declared will. Hear it again. I myself have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Then verses 7 to 9 explain exactly what this incredible statement means. It's, it spells out its contents. The, the Lord, the great king over all the earth, has made a declaration to all his world. You see, when he spoke to David in 2 Samuel 7, it wasn't simply just, let's have a chat, David. This is a private conversation between you and me. It was, but it wasn't. It wasn't just simply a private promise of God to his temporary, transitory human king. No. No, you see, it was a declaration to all the world. That's what this psalm is saying. When God said the promise to David, it was a declaration to the world, a decree of the Lord. You are my son. Today, I have begotten you. In other words, this human, this Israelite king is the son of me, the Lord of all the earth. He is my son. 
I have entered into a lasting commitment to him. I have adopted him as my son and heir. I have given his, this human his wealth, his authority, his rule. I have bestowed on him all rule and authority. Friends, can you grasp it? This is an extraordinary statement. In, and verses 8 to 9 tell us its implications. They spell out its meaning. Ask of me, he says, of this human king. He says, ask of me. And I will make the nations your heritage. And the ends of the earth, your possession. You will break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Can you see now why it is that God laughs and taunts in verse 4? For the nations have set themselves against the Lord and his anointed, but he is the God of all the earth. He created the earth. He created the nations. He is the God of all the earth. And at his anointed request, he will simply hand over the nations to his Messiah. They will be his inheritance. The ends of the earth is personal property and possession. He can do with them as he likes, you see. He can break them with a rod of iron, or he can dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. And with this, the psalm is sort of wound up in verses 10 to 12. God's declaration is serious. It's uttered by a divine king of all the world. And the poet then takes us to the powerful of the world. And he sternly warns them. Look at verses 10 to 12. Listen to them. They're sober and strong. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear, with trembling. Kiss his feet, or he'll be angry and you'll perish in his way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Now, that particular translation has a footnote in verse 12. That explains that the Hebrew here is fraught with difficulty. Nevertheless, I think the tenor is clear. And I think it's clear in all versions of the Bible, including the ones that you have, that the mumbling, the grumbling, the muttering, the conspiring nations and their rulers should change their tune. Instead of resistance, they should be wise and accept instruction. That is, instead of being uh, empty-headed plotting against the Lord, they should serve the Lord with fear and with trembling, they should give sincere homage. Otherwise, it may be, you see, that God's laughter and derision might turn to anger. And the result will be that they perish and pass away under God's quickly kindled anger. Then do you notice the final line? The psalmist addresses not only the nations, he addresses all who hear this particular psalm. In the light of God the King, and in the light of God's purposes through his anointed, his Christ, his Son, whom he has appointed, let all the earth take refuge in that Son. Given that his purposes are in his Son, then resistance against him should stop, and all should take refuge in his Son. For his Son is his anointed King, given the nations and the ends of the earth by his father to do with them as he will. 
And can you see the last line? So how blessed, how happy, how extremely fortunate are those who take refuge in him because they take refuge in the God of all the earth. Uh, there is this great psalm. Now, I want you uh, this afternoon to ask yourself a question. What is the heart of this psalm? What is the heart of this psalm? What makes it tick? Around what centre does it gravitate? Friends, the centre of this psalm is God, isn't it? Verses 7 to 9 make that clear. It is a God who is king. A God who is sovereign. A God who has his purpose for his world. A God who utters promises to David and his descendants. A God who makes declarations about where he's going and through whom he's going to work in his world. A God who tells his people that he's for them and with them. Friends, the heart of this psalm is a God who is God. A God who's sovereign. A God who's true to his word. And a God who's willing to back up his word and his promise with action. Friends, I know that you know that this psalm is so full of Christ. I know that you know that the New Testament constantly alludes to this psalm. But I want to tell you that to hear the riches of this psalm, you need to hold off jumping to Jesus too quickly. Can you hear me? Do not jump to Jesus too quickly here. To avoid jumping too quickly to hear Jesus, I want you to come with me on an exploration of the themes of this psalm that are developed within the rest of the book of Psalms. Because I think if you understand them, you'll understand its depth and its grandeur much better. So come with me. We're going to take a lightning tour through the book of Psalms. Uh, I wonder if you... Uh, do you remember how um, I was trying to explain to you last time that the book of Psalms is an intricately structured book? Uh, do you remember I told you there are five books within the Psalter? Well, let me show you something about those five books and how the ideas in this psalm are scattered through the rest of those five books. So this morning we looked at Psalm 1. It's a sort of introduction, like I said, a heading to the whole book. That is the whole of the Psalter. And that means that Psalm 2 probably operates as an introduction to the first book. Okay? Now, what have we discovered about Psalm 7? Oh, sorry, Psalm 2. We've discovered it's a book about God's covenant with David. Is that, is that right? That is, it's about an eternal promise to David. God promises security to David. He therefore promises to his people that the nations of the earth are not to be feared... They're not to be feared because God is with his people and his king, or with his king. God is with his people because he's with his king. They don't need to fear their enemies. With that in mind, I want you to turn with me to Psalm 41. Psalm 41 is the end of the first book of Psalms. Remember, five books, 41's the end of book one. How does the first book of Psalms end? Just scan down. Look at how it starts. It's a psalm of David, isn't it? And look at how it goes on. It talks about how God protects from enemies. You can see that in verse 1, verse 2, verse 5, verse 7, verse 11 and verse 12. God protects from enemies. Look at verse 11 and 12 in particular. David the king speaks to his God. 
And he says that God has done what he promised in Psalm 2. Follow it. And I've got a slightly different translation from yours at the moment. That's because of an older version of this sermon, but read it with me. David says, By this I know you're pleased with me, because my enemy has not triumphed over me, but you have upheld me because of my integrity and set me in your presence forever. Isn't that magnificent? David says, I, I know. I know you're pleased with me. My enemies, just like you promised back in Psalm 2, they haven't triumphed over me. You've upheld me because of my integrity and you've set me in your presence forever. Everything's fine and secure and it's just as you said. Now, that is the end of book one. I want you to turn with me now to the end of book two. That's Psalm 72. I want you to notice who wrote this psalm. It says it's a psalm of Solomon, David's son. Now, I want you to look at the end of the psalm. Did you notice what happens right at the end of the psalm? It says the end of the prayers of David. Do you see that? Now, can you see the problem? Beginning, it says it's a psalm of Solomon. At the end, it says it's the end of the prayers of David. I'll let you into a little Hebrew secret. I don't often use Hebrew in sermons, but let me... The word that is for Solomon, that little word for, is actually only one Hebrew letter. And it can mean for or two. Okay, four or two. Could be for Solomon, or it could be to Solomon. That makes sense? Now, if it is a prayer of David for Solomon, it puts an entirely different look on it. Does that make sense? And that's what I think it is. I think it is the final of David's prayers, particularly a prayer for Solomon. I think it's David's prayer for his son. Now look at the things that are prayed for. Verses 1 to 4, the prayer is for a king who rules justly. That's what a good dad whose king would want to pray for his son, isn't it? In verses 8 to 11, the prayer is for the king's rule to be secure from his enemy, just like Psalm 2. Again, a good prayer for a Davidic king, for David to be praying for his son Solomon. So I think... And then verses 5, 15 and 17, the prayer is that the king will live long and be blessed. In other words, I think what David is doing is praying for his son Solomon. It'll be exactly like God wanted it to be, Psalm 2. So book 1 begins with a God's promise. And it ends with David saying that God has done what he's promised. And book 2 ends with a prayer that future kings will be godly. Now look at how book 3 ends. Turn to Psalm 89. This is very important that you follow with me at this point because it gets a bit tricky, but you'll see. It will reveal some great riches. Look at Psalm 89, verses 3 and 4. The psalmist is now not a king. It appears that kings have gone. So perhaps this is being written during the exile or something like that. And the psalmist reminds God of his promise to David and his covenant with David. In other words, the psalmist is saying, remember Psalm 2. Remember Psalm 2. Now look at verses 38 and following. 
and sorry, verses 19 to 37 say the same sorts of things as Psalm 2 say. But now look at verse 38 and following. And look at what the psalmist says. Listen to him. And I'll read from the version again that's slightly different from yours. He says, but now you have spurned and rejected him. You are full of wrath against your anointed, your Christ. You have renounced the covenant with your servant. You have defiled his crown in the dust. Please, please understand what is happening. The psalmist is now saying, do you know what you've done? You have these promises and you have taken the crown off your son and you've thrown it into the ground, into the dust of the earth. That's what it looks like to us. We have no king, no Davidic descendant. Can you hear the psalmist cry? Can you hear his grief? Basically, he's charging God with having forgotten the promise of Psalm 2. Listen to him cry out to God to remember, verse 49, Lord, where is your steadfast love of old, which by your faithfulness you swore to David? Or verse 46, How long, O Lord, will you hide yourself forever? How long will your wrath burn like fire? How long, O Lord? Now I want you to move with me to the end of book four of the Psalms. Book four has lots of language about God the King. David as king, though, shrinks into the background. But I want you to have a look at Psalm 106. Verse 47 ends with another plea to God. And the plea is to gather his people from exile. Verse 47. Can you see that? What God wants to bring them back home. In other words, I think this is a psalm addressed to, to Israel in exile, up in Babylon. It is a plea for him to gather his people from the punishment of their sin. Now, have a look at the next psalm. This is the beginning of book five. Psalm 107 imagines that the prayer of Psalm 106 has been answered. God has redeemed his people and he's gathered them back from exile. And many of the Psalms that follow go on to pray prayers of trust in God. They look to God for help and deliverance. And then comes Psalm 145. Because remember, when they came back, they had no king. Do you remember that? And the big question was, what's happened to Psalm 2? Where is the Davidic king? Where is he? Psalm 145 is David's, what I would call, swan song. Right? Do you know what a swan song is? It's the last thing you do. <laughs> the last thing you say. The last song that you sing. This is David's swan song. It's the last one with his name on it in the whole of the book of Psalms. Psalm 145, followed closely by 146, but 145 is David's last. And Psalm 145 combines with 146 into a mighty praise of God the King. He's the one who's to be trusted. He is the one who assures Israel's future. He is the one who reigns forever. 
And once you've acknowledged this, then the future is insecure. By the way, here's a little secret I'll let you into today. I want you to see how many verses there are. Just scan down, see the number of verses. How many? How many verses are there? Someone yell it out for me. In the English translation, how many verses? 21? How many letters in the Hebrew alphabet? 22. 22? There's one missing. Now, if you notice in your versions, you'll find out they try and put it back in. Do you notice that? I think it's around about the end of verse 11. They say some versions, one version has found verse 11 missing and put it back in. Well, I think it's not there. That is, I think someone, a godly person probably thought, it's gone missing somewhere, I'll put it back in. But imagine if it was missing. I'll tell you something else about this psalm. It's what's called an acrostic. It goes through the alphabet. A, B, C, D, E, F, G, H, I, J, the equivalents in Hebrew, Aleph, Bet, Gimel, Dalet, and so on, all the way down. And there's one missing. Do you know what letter it is? It's the equivalent of N. It's called a Nun. It's gone. Now, if you're a Hebrew reader, you're reading A, B, C, D, E, F, G, H, I, J, K, L, and so on, all the way down. And you, oh, hang on a moment, N's missing. That would stop you, wouldn't it? And then you'd go back. Do you know what the letters of the Hebrew alphabet are? You go back. If you read them backwards, they are the equivalents of M, L, K. Now, if you put an E between each of those letters, because Hebrew people didn't write vowels in, it would spell Melech or Malak. Melech means king. Malak means rule or ruler. Now, you have a look at those words, those verses. What are they all about? They're about who is king. Have a look at them. So you stop at 11, you read backwards. They're all about God as king, aren't they? They're saying God is king. His kingdom is grand. What's the author doing? He's saying, I know you've all got a question. The question is, where is Psalm 2? Where is my king? To which God says, I am your king. And my kingdom is sure. I will do it. Now, if that's the case, can you see why the remaining psalms are all psalms of praise? Because the writer of this psalm has said, don't worry. It's all under control. For God is king. And where God is king, his promises will abound. And so in the very next psalm, you say, so don't put your trust in princes, but praise God. Put your trust in him. Praise God. All that remains is to praise God once he has assured you his future is secure. And that's what the remaining psalms do. They burst into praise and exaltation of God because God is king and if God is king, his purposes in his world, which we know from Psalm 2 are bound up in his son, 
will be accomplished. So friends, there is a survey of Psalm 2 in the whole book of Psalms. But I need to say more. Did you notice the question that hangs over the psalm if my psalms, if my brief survey is right? Let me show you in Psalm 2 in case you missed it. Go back to Psalm 2. That's where we're concentrating. Psalm 2 is clear on two points, isn't it? Point number one, God is king. He rules his world. His sovereignty cannot be upset by any human. He laughs at opposition. And the rest of the book of Psalms agrees and praises God the reigning king. And it reaches its climax in Psalm 145. However, Psalm 2 had a second point, didn't it? Do you remember the second point? Made clearly in Psalm 2 that God's rule is exercised through a human king. A king descended from David. A king installed by God. A king who is God's son. Now, by the, by the end of the book of Psalms, no such king exists. There is no human descendant of David set on Mount Zion, God's holy hill. At the end of the book of Psalms. The descendants of David have somewhat disappeared. Can you see the question posed? Yes, God is king. And yes, we can join in the psalmist and rejoice in this, but if he's king, where is the human king? The physical descendant of David. Where is his son? Now, we Christians know the answer, don't we? But you don't know the grandness of the answer until you know the book of Psalms. So flip with me to Mark 1. Mark 1. And I want you to read the very first words of Mark 1. Read them, imbibe them, soak them in. For Mark opens his book with these words. The beginning of the gospel. Of Jesus the Christ. Jesus Christ. That is, of Jesus the Messiah. That is, of Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God. That's the language of Psalm 2. Now look down at verse 9. For this Jesus goes down to the Jordan River to be baptised by John. And do you know what happens? As he comes out of the water, the heavens are just torn apart. And the Spirit descends as a dove on him. Like a dove. And do you remember what the voice thunders from heaven? It uses the language of Psalm 2. And it, look at verse 11. You are my son. The beloved. With you I am well pleased. This is who we have waited for. Now look at verse 14. Jesus comes into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God. And as he does, look at what he says in verse 15. Again, slightly different translation. The time is fulfilled. The what? Kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Why? Because you don't want to be with the rest of the nations. Because this is my king 
whom I have installed on my holy hill that the world has waited for. Can you hear the book of Psalms answered? It's absolutely extraordinary. God's kingly rule is worthy of all the praise that the book of Psalms ends with. Why? Because of God's king. Because he has, God has appointed and anointed and consecrated at his baptism this Davidic son, Jesus the Messiah, and installed him. And therefore the world and the nation should repent. And they should not kick against God's purposes. They should serve the Lord with fear, for his wrath is quickly kindled. But blessed will be he who finds refuge in this Son of God. So friends, there's Psalm 2. Isn't it spectacular? And isn't the construction of the book of Psalms spectacular? And isn't the coming of our Lord Jesus overwhelming? Now the New Testament has many applications of Psalm 2. You can read it quoted in Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Philippians, Hebrews and Revelation. They all come back to it. I'm happy to write them down and put them on an overhead later on, just all the verses that are, that are there. But what I want to do is tie together what we've learnt under two headings and then I'll observe one point of application. Okay? Two headings. First, the psalm is crystal clear in what it says. God is king. Psalm 2, very clear. God is king. He's king over all the earth. If I could put it this way, to oppose him is laughable. It is futile. It cannot succeed. After all, he is king and he's working his purposes out in his world. He may do it in his own time, but he's working it out. Second point. God's way of ruling his world is through a human king descended from an obscure king of a tiny nation. His way of ruling the world is through a Davidic descendant. And that Davidic king is Jesus, the Christ. He is God's son. He is the beloved. And if you bow before this son, then you bow before the God of all the earth. But let me tell you, remind you of Psalm 2, if you resist this son, then you resist the God of all the earth. And such resistance cannot hope to succeed. But finally, let me show you one more beautiful little thing about Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 when put together. Go back to them, Psalm 1 and Psalm 2. Look at how Psalm 1 begins. It says, happy or blessed are those who... Now I want you to look at how Psalm 2 ends. So Psalm 1 ends, how blessed, how happy are those who... And look at how Psalm 2 ends. Happy, or blessed if you like, are all who take refuge in him. Can you see what these two Psalms together are doing? How do you avoid following the advice of the wicked in Psalm 1? How do you dodge taking the path that sinners tread? In Psalm 1. How do you evade sitting in the seat of scoffers in Psalm 1? Psalm 1 says it's by finding your delight in the law of the Lord. 
by meditating on it day and night. Psalm 2 expresses it in a fuller way. Psalm 2 says it's by taking refuge in, his, in God and in his Son. It's by taking refuge in God and in his Son. But there's one more little repetition in the psalm. Let me show you. Psalm 1 talks about the godly and the righteous. And it says that they are those who do what? Do you remember what they're to do? Meditate on God's law. Do you remember that? That word meditate is the word that goes like this. It's muttering to yourself. Okay, That's what you do as you walk along. You think, I must remember that today. I must remember that. That, that sort of thing. Right? Except it's God's law you're muttering. Okay? That's the very word that is used against, used again of the nations in Psalm 2, verse 1. They're going along saying, oh, God is... You see? Okay? Can you hear what's being said? What is the way of success in this world? What is the godly way of living in this world? Psalm 1 and 2 lay it down for us. It's not muttering against God. It's muttering about God and his purposes and his law. It's muttering about the faithfulness of God's law and God's son. True blessing, true fulfillment, true godliness, True righteousness is found in meditating upon God's Son, Jesus Christ, who is the fulfilment of the law. Friends, I wonder if that is your attitude. If it's not, be there, take great care, lest you oppose God. For his purposes in his Son, they are firm and sure. They've lasted through the exile. They've lasted through Roman rule. They've lasted 2,000 years. And they'll press on toward the end God has promised. And the nations will mutter in vain and plot in vain. But God's purpose will continue. Can you hear what we're being told? What is the way of success in this world? What is the godly way of living in this world? Psalm 1 and 2, lay it out for us. It's not muttering against God. It's not muttering about God and his law. It's found in muttering about the fulfilment of his law, his son. True blessing, true fulfilment, true godliness, true righteousness is found in meditating upon God's son, Jesus the Christ. I wonder if that's your attitude. If not, be careful that you are not opposing God. For such opposition is laughable. But if it is your attitude, then you are safe in the arms of God the King. He will accomplish in his world what he's always said he will. He'll do it in his own good time. But he will. And he is your shield and your refuge. And if you cling to him, you are truly blessed. For you are on the side of God and of his son. And that's where his purposes in his world are found. Let's pray.
Father, we thank you for Psalm 2. We thank you for all those echoes we saw in Mark's Gospel. Thank you for Jesus, your Davidic King, whom you have appointed before time began. Thank you for his death. Thank you for his life. Thank you for his resurrection, which points us to his great victory. And thank you for the certainty we have in him. And Father, we thank you for all of this recorded for us in Scripture that we might see, be encouraged and be urged to obedience and faith. We thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen.